There are signs that politics are returning, and also there is a sign that there is an emerging of two Ukraine, the front Ukraine as well as the rear Ukraine, where, you know, life is becoming normalized. We're just saying, by the way, that the Odessa beaches are open since last, last week. It's officially prohibited, but there are so many people on the beaches, so I think it's tolerated. Coming to you from the banks of the River Danube, you're listening to the Vienna Coffeehouse Conversations podcast with me, Ivan Vejvoda. Welcome to our digital salon at Vienna's Institute for Human Sciences, the IWM. In each episode of the Coffeehouse Conversations, I'll be joined by Europe's Futures Fellow and leading thinkers from around the world will be probing their current research and activities through discussion, challenge, and exploration. Listen along as we explore the ideas, debates, and encounters that are and will shape the future of democracy in Europe and the world. In this podcast, I have the pleasure of talking to Europe's Futures Fellow, Balash Yarabik. Balash was until recently part of the EU's advisory mission to Kyiv, He's a non-resident fellow at Carnegie Europe and was recently awarded with a medal by the Slovak Foreign Ministry for his contribution to a variety of diplomatic endeavors. Balash this year at the Institute for Human Sciences, the Europe's Futures Fellow, is working on a subject entitled Implications of Russia's War on Ukraine on the Neighborhood. Balash, it's a real pleasure to have you with us as a fellow, but also for this podcast. Welcome. Thank you, Ivan. It's a pleasure to, to join the podcast as well as a great pleasure to be a fellow this year. So this, this is one of the most relevant topics today, globally, in so many different directions. You have decided to focus on the neighborhood. So let me start out immediately with a question about the recent meeting of the European political community, the second after Prague in Chisinau, Moldova. President Zelensky was there meeting some of the leaders of Europe for the first time, others he had met previously as well. Do you think that something new came out for Ukraine and for this question that we're tackling about the neighborhood? and the implications of Russia's invasion on Ukraine? I think the meeting, the EPC, was extremely important because it was summarizing the current trends and, and, and kind of showing where we are 50 months after the war uh, and counting and unfortunately going on. And where is the European Union vis-a-vis -vis the region? And where are the current, you know, as one of my, <clears throat> um, this, this is the key topic, what are the implications of the war in the neighborhood? So what I see, I would characterize the EPC, first of all, the mere fact that it was in Moldova, in Bulboaca, in a, in a vine castle, was also already a symbolic meaning that all the European leaders, plus the regional leaders, were willing to fly so closely to the war zone. I mean, Ukraine is just a few dozen kilometers away, and to Moldova, which in my reading could be the country which somewhat benefits from the war geopolitically. I mean, since Moldova also facing a lot of suffering, particularly economic and social, as the as the impact, as the direct impact of the war. So, and 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 that meeting symbolized that symbolism. And in my re reading, it was also like the European Union or Europe is marking Moldova as a, you know, maybe it's not politically correct, but this is ours. 
type of thing. And indeed, I, I think how the war currently stands, meaning the Russian armed forces losing the possibility to attack Odessa and therefore threaten Moldova. That was one of the part of the original plan, strategic military plan. In fact, the idea was to conquer completely Moldova as well, a yeah, whole country. To create yeah. a land bridge. Yes, indeed. So to create a land bridge from from the Kherson region toward Transnistria and actually cutting the, the Odessa region and obviously later on occupying, that didn't come through obviously because of the lack of forces and also because of the very effective Ukrainian military resistance in this part, which was also saving Moldova. I mean, one of the key messages was the Moldovan president Sandu was actually tanking, and not the first time, but in such a high level event for the Ukrainian military performance and Ukraine help, uh, which is indeed a significant help for Moldova. So, so that is this marking, I think, is the most important thing, as, as I do believe that Moldova can be the country which is ending up, uh, 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 is going to be a front runner, already is, when it comes to the European integration, and also is kind of, quote-unquote, running away from a potential Russian military action. So we were both in Bratislava recently as well for the GlobeSec Central and East European, Southeast European Summit. And it's interesting that on their way to Chisinau, both President Macron and Ursula von der Leyen made stops and very important speeches. Let me start with Macron. He seemed to come out fully in favor of NATO membership of Ukraine. What does this message mean for the global situation and for the neighborhood as well? It's, uh, I think it's a structural change in Europe, especially Western Ukrainian, I mean, the big countries, France and Germany, uh, started to embrace the integration or the enlargement of the EU again toward the East as an impact of the war. I think this is one of the, one of the greatest implications when, when it comes to the war, the geopolitical implication when it comes to the war. I also think that, you know, just to explain the larger context, as far as I see it at least, you know, that Russia, who, who clearly failed in its strategic aim of occupying, controlling Ukraine, is now, it seems like, engaged into, if I cannot take it, I will break it. And, you know, much will depend on the Ukrainian counteroffensive, what's going to happen, whether they can oust Russia or not. But I'm talking about the current, as again, as far as I see, because I don't think anyone exactly knows. But as far as I see, that's kind of the current Russian strategic calculus. So this is going to be at least should be leading on the EU side to assume greater responsibility um, toward those countries, particularly Ukraine and, of course, Moldova. I think Macron also mentioned Belarus. But in my reading, Belarus is the country where the Russians are making their marks on their own way, obviously, which means the technical nuclear weapon, which I think is going to come into Belarus from Russia. And this is going to be their mark, their stamp of Belarus. So what we see is a kind of a division of Eastern Europe as the new front line or the new Iron Curtain. I'm calling it decoupling. <clears throat> and I think this is exactly this decoupling which is happening in terms of the current phase of the war. It's very important that the big Western European countries are realizing the necessity of integrating Ukraine will see what kind of Ukraine. I think this is one of the key questions. What kind of Ukraine we're going to have but that's why I think Moldova is popping up at the front runner, because we know what kind of Moldova is out there. And I don't think it's going to change. Here, the most important thing is obviously the question of Transistria. But we can talk about this a little bit later. 
So going back to Macron, for me, that was Macron A, who is realizing the importance, a geopolitical importance of all this and moving the EU toward a more serious enlargement. You know, I have to say, unfortunately, and I don't like to criticize the EU since I used to work for them, but, you know, I think there is no structural change in the thinking. So it's much more the symbolic and not the tangible, which the EU is doing. I think the EU is doing a lot of great things, but this structural switch that we actually have to integrate these countries exactly because of the geopolitical situation is not there. So that's why I think important what Macron said and and the clearly shift from Macron, very cautious, you know, toward Russia attitude. And the second point here, I think it's trying to replace the German leadership, the non-existing German leadership. Germany, to be fair, is under a lot of pressure. They're the ones who faced the most economic implications, energy and all this from the war. I think they did when it comes to resilience, particularly on energy side, remarkably well or better, at least from my viewpoint. But that's also like Chancellor Schultz and the government coalition is under a lot of pressure to deliver more, even though they're delivering a lot. The political implications are that the German leadership or the German thought, you know, the Zeit and Wende, they have to kind of restructure everything they used to do in the past 40 or 50 years. So that is a big shock for them. And Macron is also using this to reinstate the French, who has much less economic interest in Central and Eastern Europe, but reinstate the geopolitically France leadership in, in this regard. In, indeed, the stakes have risen in a number of ways. And uh, I'll add to the fact that there was a, an indication of a mea culpa on the part of Macron and on behalf of France, because he alluded to that infamous sentence of former President Jacques Chirac, when he told the Eastern Europeans that they should not speak or shut up, to put it more bluntly, during the invasion of of Iraq. And so clearly there's a change in Macron's understanding of how Europe should at least work in the future. And so I'll move on to, to von der Leyen's speech, which was also, I would say, more than a simple speech that such leaders give because she announced a new step in enhancing the enlargement process towards the Western Balkans. For the sake of our listeners who are not uh, in the weeds of this issue with Ukraine's and Moldova's candidacy, there was a big question, what happens to the already existing candidates in the Western Balkans? And she announced a new package, let me put it that way. Again, you and I, with your futures, we travel to Moldova and to Ukraine. Odessa and Chisinau, and we we witnessed the passion and the energy with which the Moldovans were doing their European homework so that they would get uh, hopefully an accession date in December. You've until recently been intensely in Ukraine and in Kiev. Did you sense the same kind of energy and passion, even though it is a catastrophic situation, completely different because they're in the middle of the war? Do you feel this kind of the European integration engine working there? Certainly. I mean, I, this is also something which, which the Ukrainians now openly demanding, meaning, you know, we really like the line is that we are fighting for you. So the least what you can do, you know, beyond the support, which, which Europe as well as the West is providing, is to integrate us. But this is a very difficult dialogue. Therefore, one of my colleagues were actually telling me, you know, it's very hard to establish conditionality, which is very much needed toward Ukraine when we can't say no. 
at the same time, you know, the Ukrainians arguably are breaking our red lines one after another. Uh, indeed, you know, the West is in a very, is in a moral trap, if, if you like, or if you like, simply because we have to deliver for Ukraine, as Ukraine is really facing a, a terrible aggression from Russia. And it's in our common interest to help them and, and the defeated aggression and help, help Ukraine win. But at the same time, you know, that's also putting Ukraine into the, into the driving seat. And at the same time, doing a conditioned process of EU enlargement and the EU integration is requiring is actually having a negative impact on the on the conditionality. But going back to your questions, I think the energy is clearly there. And, uh, you know, it's also have to say that after 15 years of the war and, for example, Kiev haven't slept for weeks simply because of the renewed Russian missiles and drone attacks to the capital directly. You know, and the new phase, the escalatory phase of the war, where everybody is expecting the Ukrainian counteroffensive, which seems to me is already ongoing. You know, that is making the Ukrainian situation much more difficult and different from Moldova. Moldova has much larger hope and no war. Ukraine has a lot of resistance, but also a lot of hope that in the end, the European Union will deliver what they think we should deliver. Definitely, it's kind of our, our obligation, moral and other duty. If, if you like. So I think we agreed that the symbolics are working and they are, of course, extremely important because it gives a sense to the population, to the administrations, to the leadership that Europe is behind them. But what was a little worrying was what you said, but that there wasn't the structured part of it. Could you elaborate a little bit on what you meant and what would be needed to have a more positive structured approach? Well, you know, like it is, we're trying to do two things, you know, supporting Ukraine war effort and, and moving with the, with the enlargement. And so there's the structured, you know, like I think the structured effort and also like concentrating exclusively on enlargement, the war effort or the war needs to stop uh, or the need to kind of conclude, obviously we hope it is going to be concluding favorable for Ukraine. And unless this is happening, if we have a situation of a longer war, you know, I think the effort is going to be obviously supporting Ukraine in its war effort and not in the enlargement effort. So that is what makes it extremely hard, particularly because the Western public opinion is also shifting. Ukraine support is clearly there still, but I think similarly, just like in Ukraine, the Western public opinion is getting tired of a longer war facing inflation, high inflation, high energy prices, which seems to be constant. I hope the inflation not, but the energy prices seems to me will be with us. I mean, high energy prices in Europe, which is going to have implications on overall European economic situation. So, so that is a situation where our interest and the Ukraine interest would be, you know, and the Ukrainians are saying it, is to move with the war effort as quickly as possible. Obviously, Russia is still out there. And, and it's a very formidable actor, unfortunately. But when it comes to the structure, I think what it needs to be understandable in Europe, and so far based on my talks is not, it is the necessity of the decoupling, right? And I emphasizing always what kind of Ukraine is a key question. What kind of Ukraine are we going to have out of the war is a key question. Because even if the war ends, Ukraine will face these tremendous social and economic challenges. And this is what I think our focus connected with the integration on the enlargement process needs to be focused. We will have a situation when we will have a decision whether we integrate Ukraine and helping the country reconstruct and all this, 
or it has a potential to becoming a basket case, if not a black hole, which is obviously will raise a serious security and other implications for the European Union. In other words, better to have an integrated Ukraine after the war, obviously, than to create a potential for a basket case or actually helping to create a basket case simply because the structural thinking is not there, the commitment is not there, the actual support is more symbolic than tangible. I obviously calling this is a euro speak, you know, tangible would be the membership. And so we need to focus on that tangible. And I think for that, we, you know, like Macron as well as von der Leyen and Globsec came in at the right time to signalize that. I don't see necessarily that this is a consensus in Western Europe. And so we have to work on this a lot. And again, the conditions in the Western European public is not necessarily that much favorable. Therefore, the communication and the reasoning and the rationale also needs to change that this is in our interest. Otherwise, the security and other implications might be worse for the European Union. Well, thank you for laying out those challenges. And let me add to that, that in fact, your question, what kind of Ukraine and I, I may add what kind of Moldova will be taken in, because after the integration of Cyprus in the European Union, we know that the European Union then said we will never take in a country that has unresolved territorial issues, whereas clearly we have two countries, Moldova with the problem of Transnistria, and we can say something about that, and Ukraine with the occupied territories. Crimea foremost, but also the, the, the Donbass region. And then we have my country, Serbia, which has not resolved yet the issue with, with Kosovo. So what is the future for that integration? Do you think the European Union is contemplating taking in these countries for geostrategic, geopolitical reasons, notwithstanding the territorial issues? I think the moment is there. Again, I don't think that the, the actual commitment is there yet. But therefore, the Globsec speeches, and I, I forgot to add that von der Leyen was at, at least that important simply because it was a clear signal that there is no credible enlargement over the East without the Western Balkans. And, and that is absolutely correct and the political level. But the EU needs to create, and, and this is what we don't discuss much, the EU needs to create internally the, po the possibilities of, of not only enlarging out of necessity toward the East, but also like there is a, an, an old promise and an old task, actually a homework, if you like. Yeah. You know, Given, I, by the way, 20 years ago. 20 years ago, exactly. <laughs> but, you know, like we all know that, I mean, you and I at least, that that's an internal EU question. And without EU reform, internal reform, the enlargement, the tangible, right, is going to be much harder to achieve. And then the symbolic is going to be, still there. So I, while I, these are very important signals, you know, I don't think we dare in terms of the, the structural commitment because the structural commitment should be, you know, coming with an EU internal reform. And, and that is, the contours are kind of emerging, but we're very far from saying that this is being, being done. And then obviously the challenge is what kind of Moldova, what kind of Ukraine is exactly as you mentioned out there. When it comes to Ukraine, you know, the, the actual structure of, of the economy, of the Ukrainian economy, is going to be the most important, the agriculture. Let's face it, the grain ban, right, which the EU will, will force to do by its eastern member states for various reasons, I think it's, it's a very important signal about that, how difficult it's going to be integrate Ukraine because of the structure of the economy. And, and that requires a lot of rethinking. For example, internally, the, the common agricultural policy 
right? I mean, if you're going to have Ukraine, why we need so much ag agriculture within the European Union proper, but try to tell that to the French or the Polish farmers. So a lot of homework needs to be done uh, beyond signalizing the change and the structural change in elite thinking. Again, much work needs to be done internally, the internal reform, as well as explaining to the Western public and preparing the Western public as well as the, those key stakeholders, I, I think in particularly the, the, the agricultural stakeholders for that, which has substantial lobbying power within the European Union. And, you know, for Ukraine as well as particularly for Moldova, let's, let's stick Moldova a little bit, and this is, comes the Transnistria issue. I think Moldova with, I don't know, 2.3 or 2.4 million population should be, quote-unquote, a cup of cake, right, for the EU to integrate. A lot more integration is already happening, given, I don't know, between 1 and 1 1.5 million Moldovans already possess Romanian passports. So this individual integration, when it comes to Moldova, is happening. The question here is Transistria, and, and that is going to be a homework, not, on, not merely for the international community, but mostly for the Moldovans, how exactly we're going to do about a Transistria, an unrecognized enclave, separatist enclave, which, by the way, its economy is completely tied to Moldova and to the EU. Thanks to the previous 10 years ago, I think, maybe mistaken by the date, the EU, in a very smart move, allowed the integration of the DCFTA or the application of the DCFTA on Transnistria as well, which have been... The deep and comprehensive it was trade agreement. Comprehensive, <laughs> it was a very smart move <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> from the commission, simply because that was allowing the economic integration of Transnistria already with Moldova as well as with the EU. I think 70% of the Transnistrian economy is, I mean, export are going to the EU, which is significant. And, and the Transnistrian politics is now fully sustainable in terms of not Russia subsidies, but its own economy due to this, due to this structural change. Obvious question is the security as well as how to reintegrate or what to do with Transnistria. Here, Ukraine is playing its own role, signalizing that it would have a quote-unquote military solution for the problem. Obviously, this is neither Moldova nor the European Union interest, but just how complicated is this to underline, I think it's, it's, it's important to mention. Yeah, and just to mention that Transnistria is roughly 300,000 people squeezed, as you said, between on the east by Ukrainian border and on the west by Moldova proper. These would be huge issues, even if there was no war. And so the, the war adds a huge layer on, on, on top of all that. Given that, that your focus is the neighborhood, let, let me just broaden for a moment the issue. And, and look, I, I think we cannot avoid this question of, of, the, of the announced counteroffensive of, of Ukraine. So briefly, Balash, how, how is the, the government and the leadership managing expectations on this front, obviously with the desire to reconquer the territories occupied by the Russian invader? So, indeed, I mean, uh, I found originally that the counteroffensive has been much more hyped, uh, and particularly by the Ukrainian government and stakeholders, there is a lot of hope connected to an extremely difficult military task, especially given taking into consideration that Ukraine does not have a, you know, a, a reasonable air support for a counteroffensive, which, you know, against a very well defense 
Russian position. I mean, that's kind of the main difference uh, is that Ukraine, I think, is very well prepared, minus the unfortunate lack of air support. But otherwise, you know, with the Western help and training as well as material equipment assistance, I think they're ready. But the Russians are also ready for defense. So obviously, when it comes to these tasks, the defending position is easier. A big question here, how the artillery, which way is going to go, whether Ukraine can establish at least an artillery superiority on the battlefield. Until now, it was Russian superiority in in artillery, so it's also not going to be an easy feat. So, you know, it can go either way. My impression is what I have been seeing, you know, that the Ukrainians are trying to stretch the front line. That's why we see sporadic attacks on on Russia in Belgorod and elsewhere. You know, and they will try to probe the Russian defense looking for a weak point when they can move in. That's the only kind of sound, sound, and perhaps the least bloody attack. And also hoping that the Russian military, which is, you know, they created strong defense positions, but this is a mobilized army. And then the mobilized army should have moral as well as motivation issues. So the psychological effect it's going to be significant. I think that's one of the reasons why the Ukrainians are overhyped the counteroffensive, you know, aiming to target the Russian psyche. If it works, it's going to be fantastic. If it's not going to work, it may have the potential of returning on the Ukrainian leadership at the same time. We'll see. So, you know, the hope is that they will manage, you know, Western assessment currently, what I've seen as well as also in the press, are a a, a bit more sober, you know, and I think the base scenario so far is that the Ukrainians may take territories, but maybe not the whole, maybe not able to break through the whole land bridge, because that's essentially the only achievement what the Russians did in the past 15 months is creating a land bridge between Crimea and Russia proper in Donbass, between Donbass and Crimea, so connecting it with the land and you know, if Ukraine would be able to break it through, then essentially, maybe not fully, but essentially the Russian military achievements since February 24, 2020 would be eliminated by the Ukrainians. So that's the stakes. The stakes are very high. Also, if you look at the, the structural issues, the lack of, I mean, the, the actual state of ammunition, military equipment on both sides, this should have been the last decisive battle, at least for the upcoming year or two. So therefore, the upcoming few months is going to be decisive in terms of this phase of the war, whether we turning it into Ukrainian victory or it's going to be a stalemate is actually the question. We shall certainly be watching the unfolding of events, as you say, in, in at this decisive moment and with hopes, of course, that Ukraine can, can succeed. Now, Broadening the picture to to the kind of global neighborhood, again, because of your experience and and presence and frequent travels to to Ukraine, how far has the Ukrainian leadership been able to make a a dent in the global South attitude towards the war? That's exactly is one of the problems, simply because if you look at exactly the impact of the, so there is the West and there is the rest. And the rest is, obviously, I don't see the rest as un- pro-Russian, as unfortunately there is a lot of misguided impressions out of it. They try to be neutral. I agree with you. Yes. Yeah, they try to be neutral. It's not the same, 
you know, and I also don't think that it's very a good situation when 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 there is so much labeling of being pro-Russian if people want peace. That's not, you know, a lot of these countries or even people in our societies, they, they just want to stop it. That's kind of an easy solution or it looks like an easy solution. They're not necessarily doing it because they're the victims of Russian propaganda. But anyway, so the global south is looking at it and this is a European war. You know, in the past 30, 40 years, the wars have been in our territories. Now it's in the European territory. I have heard opinions that this is a regional war from our perspective, for example, from Brazil or South Africa. So, you know, you deal with it as you please. The actual pressure, I mean, why this is important is because without the rest, Russia cannot be isolated and its economy cannot be crushed. As the Western hope with the sanctions or the objective of, of the really unprecedented economic sanctions on Russia was the goal. And Ukraine, who is a really master of information warfare and how it can mobilize the West, unfortunately, these have no impact on the rest whatsoever. But that's kind of the context why not. From the rest viewpoint, Ukraine may have been come across as an aggressive part. I mean, you know, in terms of pushing its own agenda, even though everybody's recognizing it's very visible in the UN votes that the whole world is recognizing essentially Ukraine as a victim of the Russian aggression. There is not even a question about that. So what, what can be done? I don't think there is going to be a significant change if we're going to threaten the global south, you know, which there is at least one tendency which they're trying to say we're going to force you by sanctions and all this. I think it's going to be an even bigger backlash what we see now, unfortunately. Um, there must be a much more rationing and rationale, you know, Zelensky trips, for example, an engagement of the Ukrainian government, the MFA, toward this is uh, a good sign. Uh, a different question is what would be the actual message, the communication? We certainly, the rest is very different from the Western audience. Here, the moral obligation and duty, I mean, in the Western audience is much higher, they resonate well. Not necessarily. The, the global South does not feel that it has a moral obligation and duty toward Ukraine as we do. So kind of the nuances would be very important to take into consideration, both when it comes to the EU engagement, as well as the Ukrainian engagement toward this. Otherwise, the current tendency that we actually have the rest more decoupled from us is going to be growing and it's not going to be helping us in the cause. Yeah, and in fact, there was just a, a very recent meeting of the foreign ministers of the BRICS in Cape Town, South Africa, where Russian Minister Lavrov was sitting along with his BRICS partners. And it would have been interesting to hear what was said behind closed doors, which we may one day find out. It will be leaked at some point, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Someone will, as someone said, Chatham House rules until the door is reached. Right. <laughs> right. So since we're slowly closing in and coming towards the end of, of, our, of, of this really in-depth view of, of what is going on, two questions maybe for the end. First one, that's slightly off of your main topic of research. As we know, in any war, and all wars are in many instances so similar, political life comes to a, a grinding halt. But there are obviously things that are happening, un political undercurrents. Is there anything you wish to share with us on, on what is political life in Ukraine at this moment beyond the issue of the war? But although 
more obviously in foreign political life? Yeah. Well, you know, I would say that in this past 15 months, political life has been put into the back burner, and rightly so, simply because the main focus was the resi- resilience and resistance against the Russian aggression. I think it's absolutely fair to say that the Ukrainian society uh, came across to support overwhelmingly, exclusively, as you wish, I mean, really pretty much everyone uh, or almost everyone, you know, supporting the war effort and, and resistance. And this resistance is going to be, or resilience is going to be, or it's already a major feature of the Ukrainian society. At the same time, there are signs that politics are returning. And also there is a sign that there is an emerging of two Ukraine, the front Ukraine, as well as the rare Ukraine, where, you know, life is becoming normalized. I mean, the past few weeks, obviously, the Russians showed to Kiev that the war is going on, but otherwise life is returning. I was just saying, by the way, that the Odessa beaches are open since last, last week. It's officially prohibited, but there are so many people on the beaches and they are making preparation to separate the water from, you know, from the deep water, at least so people can, so I think it's tolerated by the authorities. So the wish of Ukrainians, the tiredness is also sets in. So the resilience is going to stay. The war effort support is going to stay. But at the same time, the Ukrainians would like to return to a new normal, at least, which is going to have implications for, for how they will think about the end game or what's the end result will be. I frankly think that politics will return big time once the war effort is going to go down. I mean, which I think inevitable after the counteroffensive. Uh, much will depend, obviously, how the counteroffensive is going to be be playing out. But I do not think that either side will have after the counteroffensive, which certainly is going to be bloody and exhausting, that they're going to have offensive capacity or significant offensive capacity left. So stalemate, kind of freezing, at least the intensity of the war is going to be expected after summer. Uh, and this is where I think the Ukrainian politics can return into a different stage when this hibernation phase is going to be over. And then then what kind of Ukraine we're going to have is going to be returning as a, as a major question or a major focus. So as part of that, has there been a level of what is termed de-oligarchization or rather a lessening of the level of corruption for which unfortunately, Ukraine was plagued with before the war? Well, the first question, it's, I, you know, we have a lot of indicators that the de-oligarchization is happening, um, not by design, by political design by Zelensky, but by default. That's an impact of the war. Unfortunately, the de-oligarchization is happening by de-industrialization as well. The oligarchs are losing their assets, which unlikely is going to be reinstated. So their impact on Ukrainian politics are going to be much less. The other place, you know, like their relationship with the war is also going to be diminish their impact over political life. And we're going to see a lot of redistribution. But, you know, like I I would be cautious uh, against, you know, thinking that if, let's say, Igor Kolomoysky is going to be gone, the oligarchization of Ukraine politics is going to be gone too. What we see, unfortunately, is certain redistribution elements are already going on. After the war, it's going to be only accelerating. And the question is whether there is going to be a state which can regulate politics and, and 
private sector, or is going to be, again, emergence of new oligarchs, new rich people who kind of will be able to manipulate the state just as in the past 30 years, and then Ukraine would remain a captured state. So for that, to avoid a stronger hand, a stronger state needs to be emerging, whether we like it or not, which is obviously going to have implications on democratic credentials as well as the governance system and, 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 and how Ukraine is going to be governed. That's going to be a key issue. When it comes to corruption, there are, you know, there is unfortunate indicators that corruption is, it didn't go away. A certain form of corruption is obviously gone, but when it comes to, particularly if you follow humanitarian aid and, and government position connected corruption, there are a lot of rumors that the, that the military officials, those who are going to give you permission to leave the country or recruit you or take you or let you in are the new rich guys in the region. So there are many, many rumors that corruption didn't go away. Indicator is less so. We'll see. I mean, Ukraine has strong anti-corruption institutions. And after, I, I think, and again, it's the same thing, what you focus, what you focus on the war effort, or you're going to focus on like your ordinary, normal work, but during the war, it's not that easy. So much will depend how this, you know, anti-corruption organizations are going to do their work right after the war is going to be concluding in this way or another. Yeah, that is what war does to countries and societies and, and people. Final question, maybe putting you on the spot and related to your topic on effects of, of, of the neighbors, so taking you back to, to your country, Slovakia, why is it that a huge amount of people think that the West is responsible for this war in a European NATO member state with a very progressive president, Ms. Chaputova, who is fully supportive, as is the government of the Ukrainian effort against Russia? There is not a simple answer to this, or there is a multi-layer answer, as usual. But, you know, one of the reasons is, is unfortunately, the, the weak performance or the very chaotic performance of the, of the previous government. Now, Slovakia has a caretaking government. The hope that until the elections and after, until it's, you know, it, the new government is going to be formed, they're going to calm down the situation. And one of the reasons they have to calm down the situation because the previous government has been extremely chaotic. So the Slovak voters, and because Ukraine and the policy on Ukraine has become a very vocal element of the previous government work, I think one of the reasons is why the Slovak voters are reacting on this and connecting it with a very unpopular former government and, and former government politicians. That's number one. Number two, obviously, Slovakia traditionally has been a pro-Russian country. This is, when I say traditionally, I'm talking about the past 150 years. So this is not something really, really new. The, the president talked about Russian disinformation. This is obviously partly the case. There is a lot of Russian narratives popular in Slovakia. But also, I already mentioned that there are among those, there's a lot of people who blame the war for higher inflation, energy prices, and all this. So quality of life, they connecting, a lot of people connecting quality of life issues with the Ukrainian war, whether this is right or wrong. We're talking about perception here. And their so easy solution is that let's stop the war, meaning peace, and then we're going to have, you know, this is going to go away. So a lot of them just want the war to end to ease the quality of life issues. And they have oversimplified solutions for this. Let's have peace. And these kind of slogans, which may or may not coming from Russia, you know, the opposition politicians are exploiting that big time. So in the end, we have this mix, 
mix that, you know, the it, it is all about the Ukrainian policy or the choice between Russia and Ukraine. It is it is really not that that easy. Now, just very quickly, I actually don't expect a U-turn, even if Robert Fico, the former prime minister, would win, simply because for Slovakia, being part of the West, being part of the EU is extremely important. And when he was prime minister, it was exactly the case. What we see, though, is that Fico is the only opposition politician who are willing to go against the elite consensus on Ukraine. And that's what's going to bring him the victory in the election. So, of course, as a normal opposition politician, he's, he picks up the ball, which is called Ukraine, and runs with it. And frankly, you know, I think that after the elections, whatever happens, even if he, he will be able to form a government, which I don't expect, I think he will drop that ball. And, and meaning that the policy will not be a significant change when it comes to the new government. I use the message to get into power and then I abandon that message when I'm in power. Exactly. Balash, <laughs> exactly. thank you very much for those important multi-layered insights from an important frontline country of the European Union and NATO in this global situation. Balash Arabic, thank you very much for being a guest on this program. Thank you so much, Ivan, and all the best. See you soon. That concludes this episode of Vienna Coffeehouse Conversations, the podcast brought to you by the Europe's Futures Programme at the Institute for Human Sciences in Vienna. Europe's Futures is a programme of impact, ideas and action for a Europe that rises to the challenges of the 21st century and is undertaken in collaboration with the Erste Foundation. To find out more about our work and research, visit europesfutures.eu.